We begin reading in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, and from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed uh, among, uh, to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom uh, the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. When the young men came forward, uh, they wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? I mean, that that word testing uh, recalls Israel as she came out of the promised land, testing God. Uh, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look! The, men of the, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down dead uh, at his feet. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about, uh, and all who heard about these events. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are ever so grateful to you, Father, for your word. We pray that we've just heard it read and and now as we hear it preached, instruct us and speak to our hearts, minister to us, and show us the paths that you would have us walk. In Christ we pray. Amen. So I've titled the sermon, Case Study in Generosity, Holy Space and Deceit. So, real simple three-point sermon today. We'll start out with generosity. There there was a big-name pastor, I'm not going to give away his identity, who, when he was preaching through the book of Acts, and he got to this part, the end of Acts 4, beginning of of Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, he he told everybody in their church, get out your wallet uh, and get out your Bibles he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read our Bibles with, with our, one hand on our wallet, the other hand, you know, on our Bible. Um, and he says, how many of you have read the Bible while, while holding your wallet? I think that'll be very clarifying, <laughs> he, he put it. 
And while, I mean, I recognize, we, all, we probably all recognize that there's a bit of grandstanding going on there. You, you can also kind of sense the point he's trying to make. I mean, this, this for so many of us does function as a God. And, um, and, and this is the word of God. And this is oftentimes, you know, the God of mammon. And, and this is the logos. I mean, the, the word of God in, in Christ. And you can't love them both. You just can't love them both. You cannot serve both of those masters. Verse 32, uh, we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind. I mean, he's, obviously Luke is kind of giving us the ideal. Uh, all were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had, or literally, they had everything in common. And no, this wasn't an early form of communism. It's simply describing, it's describing the radical generosity of, of the early church, um, the, the spirit-filled church. Uh, you saw in the front of your bulletin, uh, DeYoung's quote, how in some ways this is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 15, when God's people go into the promised land and they're living the way that God intended for them to live. It says that when you're there, there will be no needy people. There will be no poor among you. And that's exactly what's going, up, what's going on, what's happening. Of the 10,000 or so new Christians that are in the city of Jerusalem at this time, there wasn't a poor person among them. I mean, that's startling that they took care of each other so well. So Luke here is, he is describing a little bit of heaven on earth. You know, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God down uh, upon the earth. What I have to say this morning about generosity is, I mean, it's nothing new. It's nothing that you haven't heard before. But it is important to uh, reiterate it and um, just be reminded of the things that we know. One of the evidences that someone truly has met Jesus Christ and is filled by his spirit is their attitude to their uh, possessions changes. I mean, we really go through life seeing, you know, this in an entirely different light. And one of the transitions that we make is from this idea of ownership to this idea of stewardship. You know, that's, I've heard a lot of pastors talk about that before. You know, ownership, it's mine, I earned it, I deserve it, I'm entitled to it, I will use it, I will consume it, I will spend it, M-I-N-E. <laughs> and stewardship is... I mean, it's not M-I-N-E. It's not mine. It's the Lord's. It, and it's all a gift. God gives to us so that he might give through us. I mean, God doesn't need our money. We know that. Of course, he doesn't need our money. But he wants to use our money in order to, to care for others, to give, to distribute his money, his money through us. No, we are not owners. We are stewards and when the Holy Spirit is filling our lives, we don't go through life simply looking to take. We go through life looking for opportunities to give. I heard a great expression, somebody put it uh, to me this week. This is how they described every, every Christian. All Christians are trust fund children. A, a trust fund child. You know, I mean, if you uh, have very wealthy parents and they want to pass along their wealth to you, they might, might put it in a trust fund, especially if they die or they go away. They'll put it in a trust fund. 
But they won't give the child access to all the money at, at the same time. You know, you have to kind of mete out the money slowly to the child so the child uh, demonstrates that they, they learn how to use it properly. And our Lord trustee, our Father, knows what's in our hearts and he's pretty careful with how much of the trust fund he gives us in this life and he determines how much money um, we can use. But, but we are radically wealthy, <laughs> We are so radically wealthy. We are, promised, we are promised that we will inherit the earth. We, we have been promised that every single need that we have will be taken care of. I mean, for many of us who've grown up with a scarcity mindset, this overwhelming fear that I'm not going to have enough. I'm not going to have enough when my kids go to college. I'm not going to have enough when I... Uh, hit my 40s. I'm not going to have enough when I retire. I'm, I'm going to get sick and, and not have enough when I'm 70. We, many of us go through life with this scarcity mindset. But we have, we, we have promises in the scriptures that everything we, we need will be provided for us. Um, we've been promised that, what? We have treasure in heaven. Um, we are rich beyond description in Christ. And that, when we internalize it, Certainly, it frees us up to be generous in this life. Funny story from church history. John Wesley, the great revivalist preacher, uh, the, uh, very instrumental in the first great awakening here in the US, uh, American colonies. Wesley ended up making money on his sermons. So his sermons were very popular, and they would um, write them down, transcribe them, and then publish them. And it turns out he ends up making a fair bit of cash from his money. But if you know anything about John Wesley, you know that he was like crazy generous. I mean, to the point of foolish generous. And so whatever money he would get, he'd end up giving away. Well, the story is told one day he comes home after circuit preaching and he, um, he had made some money while he was circuit preaching. He comes in the door to meet his wife, Susanna, and their 13 children. She discovers that he has virtually nothing in his pocket. He's given all of the money away. She's mad as a hornet. So she ends up grabbing him by his hair, uh, dragging him all across the house and beating him because he was uh, so, you know, uh, profligate, or however you say that word, with, with his money, which just goes to show you there are, there are very funny stories in church history. <laughs> um, I'm not suggesting that we ought to not care for our families, um, but if we are going to err, shouldn't we err like, on the side of generosity? Now, I do think the Lord calls us to tithe. I think the star- a tithe is a starting point. I also know that many of us can be far more generous than a tithe. I also know that if you are paying attention to the Holy Spirit, you will find that the Spirit, he ends up nudging you to do things. He ends up sending you out on little monetary assignments. I mean, I think you will hear the Spirit say to you from time to time, uh, buy groceries for that single mom. Uh, help pay tuition for that family who can't afford their tuition. You got a car in the garage. You're not using that car. I mean, give the car away. I mean, all of these, like, haven't you ever heard that before? Just little, like, little nudges of the Holy Spirit trying to, telling you to, like, nudging you to be generous. 
I really believe that he does that. I mean, he did it clearly to Barnabas. Barnabas ends up feeling a nudge and he ends up, you know, giving a, a, what it looks like a huge sum to the church. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the Holy Spirit you know, convicts us that we, we need to give a lot. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit convicts us that, uh, you know, we just need to consistently give small to other people in the church as we find need. And not only to the people in the church, but, you know, also to those, our neighbors in the community. Yes, yeah, so verse 36, the Holy Spirit convicts Barnabas to sell the land and give all of the money to the church. It's fair for you then in response to that, to just to consider the question, what is the Holy Spirit like nudging me to give, me to do? What is he convicting, what is he convicting me of? Secondly, it's holy space. A case study in holy space, uh, that... You might have been wondering what that could possibly be referring to. This story of Ananias and Sapphira has long troubled readers of the Bible. It it seems unfair, doesn't it? That they're struck down, immediately dead. Um, They're not given any opportunity to repent. They get no chance for a second chance. Why is is this in the the Bible? Um, Instant judgment when somebody is like immediately struck down by God, is a rare occurrence in the Bible. So why are they struck down? What was their sin? Now, most Bible scholars say their sin was twofold. They lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They may even say that that lying to the Holy Spirit here is some some, uh, form of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus warned against. The second part of their sin is their pride. They're wanting to be regarded in the eyes of others as as looking far better than they do. They're they're wanting to be regarded as as well as Barnabas was regarded. Uh, Somebody said they wanted to go to the church that has the board on the wall that says platinum level givers and hallelujah level givers and maranatha level givers. I mean, they they wanted the approbation and... Uh, honor that was afforded to a great, generous person who was noted by all people. And maybe the reason they wanted to do that, they wanted to gain the reputation which would give them a place of influence in the church. I think that is all probably going on. I don't think that's mostly the, the key thing that's going on. If you look at verse 2, Well, we'll look at two. Let me say one more thing from um, the Old Testament. Normally in the Old Testament, when somebody receives immediate judgment from God, it's in relation to holy space. So if you're walking along, transporting the Ark of the Covenant, and all of a sudden you reach out your hand to touch the Ark, you die. If you walk into the temple and you decide you're going to burn incense just because you want to, you die. There were very strict regulations of who could enter the temple, how far they could go, when they could be there, all of that. If you don't follow those regulations, you die. Well, there's one other story during the destruction of the city of Jericho, the conquest of the city of Jericho. There was a man who took what was designated by Joshua as plunder that was holy to the Lord. So exceptionally holy um, um, 
goods from inside the city that was devoted to God. This is God's. None of us are to touch that. This man ended up taking that. He buried it under his tent. He stole it. He kept it for for himself. Well, in verse 2, now we circle back to it. In verse 2, it says that they uh, kept back some of the the money. Uh, I can't find exactly what what it says. Ah, there it is. Yeah, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. Kept back is the very same word that is used in the book of Joshua to, to, to describe Achan's sin. And so here's what I think is actually going on. They, they offer this. They say, this is holy to you, O Lord. And then they place it at the apostles' feet. The apostles' feet was holy space. And in so doing, they are essentially uh, bringing defilement to that holy space. Just like your hand can defile the ark, just like your incense can defile the temple, just like, your pre- just like you can defile what is God's in stealing from it, that is exactly what they are doing. So essentially, this is a false offering And they are defiling the holy space of the apostles' feet, which is a metaphor, I think, for the doorway into the church. They are are defiling the church. Um, I think what Luke in the background is, is trying to tell us is that the church is now functioning kind of like the old temple. The church is a place of, of holiness where every blemish uh, cannot be tolerated. And at least that's my, my best interpretation of the passage. Uh, um, you look at verse 3, whether I'm right or wrong with that part, it's clear that this was all the doing of Satan. This was the plot of the devil. It, it, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Uh, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? Can, does that ring any bells? Can you think of anybody else in the Bible who uh, was filled with Satan and ended up doing anything? Yeah. Judas Iscariot was filled by Satan. And, ah, and he sold out Jesus for money. Ah, so Judas traded Jesus for money. Satan used Judas to kill the son. Satan is trying to do the same thing again, to kill the church, the body of Christ, with this, like, defiled offering. Um, I mean, the Bible does say a little bit of yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And um, I think that's what's happening here. Finally, number three, the matter of deceit. We've used this definition of a lie before. A lie is intentionally trying to deceive someone in thoughts and actions. We've said that lies are fundamentally thefts of reality. Thefts of reality. When we lie, we are telling other people that they don't deserve to experience reality. They uh, don't deserve the truth. Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. That's what we're saying in our lies. Lies are meant to keep other people in the dark. Lies are meant to distort the field of vision. Why is it that we lie? I mean, the reason we lie is because at that moment, there's something we feel that we must have. There's something we, we strongly feel that, you know, I must have this to survive or to be happy or to, at that moment, it, you know, Ananias and Sapphira lie because they wanted the approval of others. 
And what do lies do? Lies, they always create relational distance between us. I've used the analogy before. A lie is like pouring hydrochloric acid on the thin fabric of our relationships. And the most precious thing in this life is our relationships with other human beings. Um, And if you pour hydrochloric acid on something that is thin and fragile, I mean, if you have a society that can't trust what their government tells them, that kind of society isn't going to last. And if you have a boyfriend and girlfriend who can't trust each other, that's a relationship that's not going to last. Uh, Families don't last that way. Marriages certainly don't last that way. Um, We often hear the phrase that appearance is everything, and that is how the world works. But in the church, because the church ought to be a place where we value relationships above all else, I mean, for us, we, we ought to say the truth is everything. Like, really. The, the, the truth in love should mean everything to us. And we of all people as Christians, we ought to be able to tell the truth. Why? Because we have met a person in Jesus who already knows everything about us, who knows us inside out, and, and who still embraces us who knows us backwards and forwards and still loves us. I mean, surely, if we internalize the message of the gospel, we of all people should be able to tell the truth because we've been loved by somebody who sees what a terrible mess we are. You and I know that based on the law of averages, there are at least several people here this morning who are living in lies, who are living in concealment, who are living in, in darkness. And, and I, I'm sure there are several people online who are living, who, who are shielding everyone else from reality. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, uh, recounted the story how one time he was preaching and all of a sudden, like words came into his mouth And he was not planning this. He knew nothing about it. All of a sudden, he starts in the middle of his sermon kind of denouncing some man in his congregation. He didn't know who it was. He says, you are lying from your, uh, you are stealing from your employer and you're keeping it for yourself and you better give it back because you're about to be found out. He felt a little anxious uh, spouting that in, in the middle of a sermon and wondering, like, well, how, where did that come from? I have no idea. Well, right after the service, a guy walks up to him and says, please don't tell him I'll give it all back. <laughs> um, and, and what was happening, I think, is, is something analogous to what happened here with Peter. Peter was able to tell through some kind of word of knowledge through the Spirit that the price you said you sold that for is not the price that you really sold that for. Uh, And you know, I've never had one of those. I'd love to have a word of knowledge. I'd love any miraculous gifting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Those types of things, they do crop up during times, especially times of great revival, very um, times when the Spirit is moving in church history. Uh, I'd love for God to do that among us. I can say this though, um, whoever you are, you need to come into the light. Whatever you're doing, you need to come into the light. Um, Jesus, Jesus saved you for something better. You know, he, he saved you to live in the truth and you need to come into the light.
We don't want to be a people who puts on a show to look more virtuous or noble or altruistic than we really are. We don't want a people, we don't, I'm sorry, we don't want to be a people who lies to cover up our sins. We don't want to be that kind of people because he, he's made us to be a different kind of people. He's made us as saints and his beloved children. In conclusion, I can't find if G.K. Chesterton ever actually said this. It's attributed to him a number of places, but uh, it sounds very Chestertonian. He, he says uh, this, that uh, it may be possible to have a good debate over whether or not Jesus believed in fairies. It's a tantalizing question to consider. Alas, it is impossible to have a sort of debate over whether or not Jesus believed that rich people were in big trouble. <laughs> there is too much evidence on the subject, and it is overwhelming. <clears throat> I, I think that's mostly true. I think it, uh, it's sobering for us because, I mean, let's be honest, we are rich people. <laughs> we're, we're quite rich. And if you know anything about Luke's gospel, you know that he writes more about economic considerations, more about the rich and the poor uh, than any of, of the other gospel writers. For example, he, he's pretty hard on the rich. In, his, in Luke's recounting of the Beatitudes, not only does he pronounce a blessing on the poor, but he also says, or records Jesus as saying, "'Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation.'" Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry, writes one commentator. Of the four writers of the gospel, Luke has the most to say about wealth and poverty. He chooses his material and organizes it in such a way that his audience would understand that how you handle your money has everything to do with following Jesus. But here's the catch. He's not a, a, a poor man denouncing the rich. He's writing to a rich man. Uh, we didn't talk about it when we started the book of Acts, but the book of Acts is, is like dedicated to uh, the same gentleman whom the, the gospel of Luke was dedicated to. This guy by the name of Theophilus, friend of God is what that means in Greek. We're not sure if that was a, a title that was given to him or if Somebody, um, a mom and dad somehow named him Theophilus. We don't know very much about him, but about all we know is that he was likely a government official and he was very rich. And normally in the ancient uh, times when you're writing a, a book such as these, you would uh, start your book out basically uh, thanking or, or addressing your patron. Who is your patron? Your patron is the person who funded your research project. Your patron was the guy, Theophilus, who most likely funded uh, Luke in writing the Gospel of Luke and, and Acts. So it's, these are books written to a rich guy. Um, he's not trying to shoot his patron, and he's not trying to shoot himself. The second reason why uh, we know is because Luke was most likely a rich guy. Luke, Paul describes as the beloved physician. That was an occupation then, as it is now, that was you know, pretty good remuneration. Luke was a, a, likely a, a, wealth, a rich guy. He, his writings show him to be well-educated, well-traveled, and well-connected, you know, cosmopolitan man. So he's not a poor man writing to denounce the, denounce the rich. He's a rich man writing to another rich man, on how like, we who are rich people 
could, could truly follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way of that is radical generosity. Um, that is the way for, for us to follow Jesus. We can't serve God and mammon. We can be a community that is filled with the Holy Spirit and we can use our possessions the way that Christ wants them to be used. Amen.